for a lot of us, we'd have to admit, we don't really get the idea of faith. And it's something that is supposed to be very central to the Christian life. You know, we're supposed to have faith in God. Our very salvation kind of is tied to this idea of faith. And so what is faith? How does it work? What does it look like in our life? For some, we get caught up that faith is the idea of a set of beliefs. And sometimes when you read the Bible and it talks about the faith, it's talking about these, the essential understanding of who Jesus is and what he wants to do in our life, the gospel, if you will. For others, the idea of faith is this magic wish or wand, if you will, that you wave over all of your hopes and dreams to try to get God to act on your behalf and do what you've asked him to do. And we, we, we really hope and, and put our energy in that. And if we just have enough faith, then God will do anything and everything that we ask him to do. And yet for others, uh, faith is something that can lead to a lot of heartbreak because it's about the idea of trust. And for a lot of us, trust is a very difficult thing especially in our relationship with God, to surrender ourselves and say, okay, God, this is bigger than me. This is more about you. I'm going to trust you. means that we leave some of our expectations on the table and we kind of bear our heart and it really makes us vulnerable. And we see here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, it adds a lot of pressure to this whole idea when it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so for a lot of us, we think, man, I'm never going to measure up. I'm never going to earn God's favor. I'm never going to be acceptable to him without faith. That probably isn't the best understanding of that passage there. But he goes on and says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this morning, I want to help you understand what does it mean to live by faith. I want to give you three principles this morning. What does it mean? The first one is this. We need to believe that Jesus exists. We see this back in this verse in Hebrews eleven six, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists or that he is, that God is. Now, when we say that God is, the word is means uh, a few things. It can mean existence. It can mean present and it can mean source. And so when we think about this, when we say that God is, that means that he exists, that he is present, and that he's the source of, of life. And so this is the first belief that we have to have is that God exists. And that becomes really hard, right? Because we like sure things and, and we like to be able to see and touch. And so what does it mean to have faith in a God that you can't see, but you can know? What is it like to trust a God that doesn't seem to intervene in your life, gives you freedom to make decisions, but yet is somebody that you can totally turn to for transformation? And so we, when we wrestle with this, we actually look in two places to define something or determine if something exists, right? We look to science or we look to logic. Let's think about science for a minute. You know, for a lot of us, you know, we, we might have been uh, in a position where we think that science, you know, contradicts God, that it disproves God. And I would say that that's not true. There's, there's more than the laboratory sense of science where you can take something and apply the scientific method to it and repeat it and get the same result, right? None of us can recreate God's existence any more than we can recreate the moment that we were conceived, right? So we, we can't do that in a laboratory. So how do we determine scientifically with some knowledge, some understanding that someone has existed, right? Think about George Washington, how do we know that George Washington existed? None of us have ever seen George Washington. 
So there's no eyewitness account. We can't touch George Washington. So we can't see him, but we can know who he is. How do we do that? Well, we use things called uh, history. We use things like anthropology and archaeology. We can, we can research culture, time, and place and, and look at historical record to determine if someone has existed and in their existence what they were like and what they did with their life and what is true and what's maybe not true or things that are speculative and things that are firm, right? We use this process all the time to determine, and it's a very scientific and knowledgeable thing. And so Christianity doesn't get in the way of understanding who God is. How do we know that God exists? Well, God chose to reveal himself in the person of Jesus, which means that God stepped on the planet. Now, that's a game changer because all other religion is God's a mystical figure. He's far removed and you have to live and believe and act in a certain way and you might get to see him someday. But God, you know, Jesus is, I'm coming down, I'm introducing myself, I'm inserting myself into creation. And better than that, I'm going to predict my arrival into humanity. And I'm going to give you all kinds of things like prophecy and archaeology and anthropology and all of these sciences for you to be able to look and discern information as to whether I exist and who I say I am is really who I say I am. It's this little thing called textual criticism. So... If you think about George Washington, we know that he exists because we've read about him in a history book. How do we know that what we know about George is true? Well, you go back as close as you can to eyewitnesses that wrote on his behalf, that observed what he said, that, um, that jotted these things down and preserved them through time. And then you go through time and see if that story can be consistent and verifiable through multiple sources of information. And what we do is we look at all of that information that's there and say, this is what we can know to be true about George Washington. And then there are these things that we speculate and think about. Well, the same thing is true for God. We can go back. This is what is so incredible about the Bible, is that God chose to insert himself in a time and place where information was being recorded and preserved. So in other words, we can go back and we can read these manuscripts and these texts over different cultures, different languages, over different times, and get really close to the eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is and what he has said and what he has done. And then we look at the the big crowd of witnesses, if you will, to say, this is what we know to be true about God. And we sync that up and say, this is truth about God. And we compile this information so that we can know and understand what people got to see firsthand in the life of Christ. And that's what's so powerful about the Bible. And that's why some information makes it into the Bible and other information is held in speculation because there's information that is overwhelmingly verifiable and then there's other information that's not as credible. And all of this gives us an understanding of who God is, that he exists. See, it's really important. Another thing is, is logic, right? If you take basic logic and you listen to the teaching of who Jesus is and what he says about life in the world, it's really not that hard to believe. Because, see, for some, we write God off because it just seems unreasonable that there's just one way to heaven, Right? We look at God being huge and big and enormous. Who in the world gets the right to claim that they have the path to God in all of these cultures and understandings and information about God? It seems unreasonable to think that. For others, it seems unreasonable to believe in a God because evil and suffering exist in the world. 
And so logically we say, well, there can be no God. But if we look at the teachings of Christ and the biblical worldview for a minute, logic really helps us see that God exists. You know, for example, is it really unreasonable to think that a well-ordered universe has a designer? I mean, everything in our culture, whether it's you know, genetic engineering or, or engineering buildings, whether it's you know, thinking about environmental engineering, all of these things that we do, we know that there's an order and a system and a balance to things, and we know that there has to be a design, there has to be a plan, and things have to rely on one another to exist. There has to be some intelligence behind that to make it happen. Is it really that unreasonable to think that God created the heavens and the earth, that there might be the possibility that an intelligent being created, engineered, if you will? Is it really unreasonable to think that mankind was wired to relate to God? Because this is what the Bible teaches, that God created us to know him, love him, and, and follow him. Right, that God has wired each and every person to be able to write with God. And, and we all wrestle with the God question, no matter where we are on the planet. Who is God? If he does exist, what does he desire from us? What is it like to know him? Everybody wrestles with that question. Whether you're an atheist, you wrestle with that question, and you're coming to a conclusion saying, because of these things I can't figure out, God doesn't exist. If you're a believer, you're wrestling with these questions to figure out who God is and what he wants to do in your life. Is it really that unreasonable to think that the reason that humanity craves love is because God has imprinted each human being to crave love and to express love, because that's part of his nature? When God says that God, he has created humanity in his image, that we are like him spiritually, is it really unreasonable to think that, that we crave love because God is love? Is it really unreasonable to think that we cry out for justice when wrong because God is just? See, is it, is it really unthinkable to believe that when we're backed up against the wall, we're looking for hope because God is hope? See, so our logic and our experience does not contradict the fact that God is real, that he exists. Everything within humanity is crying out. Searching for, longing for, trying to answer and, and fulfill these desires within themselves. It's evidence. Am I talking gibberish if I say humanity is not perfect? <laughs> that the reason there is so much pain and suffering in the world is because humans inflict evil and selfishness upon the world. Is, it really, is that really gibberish to think that humanity has a very selfish side? Whether it manifests itself in victimizing other people or in apathy, is it really that far of a stretch, logically, to realize that pain and suffering exists because people don't always make the right choice? Is it ridiculous that God would be offended by this rebellion and sin and suffering in the world? That if God created humanity to know, love, and follow him and to reflect his goodness and kindness, would it be ridiculous to think that God would be offended by sin? Is it out of the realm of possibility to admit that man can't fix the problem on his own? Listen, we have been trying since the beginning of time through social engineering, social constructs, whatever you want to do, just creating the right environment to try to fix all of humanity's problems. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we cast huge shadows on the rest of the world, unaware most of the time of the effect that our decisions have 
on the other people around us? Is it unreasonable to think that we might need help from the outside? And is it ridiculous to think that this sin and this rebellion and this inability to fix things would actually create a huge chasm between us and God? Where we actually blame God or we're rebellious towards God or we just don't get God at all. Is it insane to say that man is confused about God and needs a clear picture of who he is? No. And this is why God inserts himself in humanity. Jesus is God's revelation of himself. It's God introducing himself to humanity, saying, I exist. In the middle of all of your questions, all of your doubts, all of your pain, all of your rebellion, all of the things that you don't get, all the things that you do get, I exist. And God asks for us to believe that if we're going to draw near to God, if we're actually going to connect with God, faith, we have to believe that he exists. The second principle is this, and this one's a little harder. If we believe that God exists, then we need to believe that he's good. Where do we see this? Back in verse 6 of Hebrews 11. It says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he rewards those who seek him, that he's the rewarder, some uh, translations say. So think about this for a second. It's one thing to believe God exists. And if we come to that point, do we really believe that he's good? Because see, that's the other side of faith. It's one thing to reason out with logic and science and have an intellectual knowledge of God, but to really entrust yourself to someone, to really experience that person, to really be close to someone... Well, that requires something a little more, doesn't it? It means that information has to translate into vulnerability, trust, a willingness to get to know. And for a lot of us, that's very hard because we've been burned. We've asked God to do things that he has not done, that we thought were good. There have been times that we have trusted him with things and God has chosen to do something completely different. It's our expectations that cause us to question the goodness of God. And so a lot of us, we can look at God saying he's that harsh God who is either apathetic, that distant father that could care less about me, or others could look at it and say, God is that God who is harsh and wants to condemn and is just waiting for me to step out of line so he can smack me in the back of the head. But we don't really believe that he's good. And believing that he is all good all the time is very essential for faith. Because if we begin to think that God is up there conditionally judging us, conditionally loving us, choosing to bless who he thinks ought to be blessed and to curse who he thinks ought to be cursed, that God is up there somehow playing a cruel lottery with humanity, drawing your name out of the hat and saying, today your life will suck. If that's the way we view God, we're never going to place our faith in him. But the truth is, is that pain and suffering exist in the world not because of God. See, when we say that God is not good, what we're really saying is, is that God is the source of all problems in the world, right? God gets blamed for all of the problems and pains in the world, right? 
Why does God get credit for that? Isn't it humanity that should get credit for that? See, that's the problem. We will place our faith in something. And for the overwhelming majority of us, we always place our faith in ourselves, Because we think we know ourselves. We think we're the sure thing. We're, we, we have some sense of known and control. And that means that we become the center of the world and things that happen to us, suddenly we become the victim and God should have done differently if he really loves and cares for me. But when we realize that we're entering into his story, that our life is a gift and that it's borrowed and he is the center and we're coming to him, then this story looks very different. That God is good and in him there is light and there is no darkness at all. There is absolutely no darkness. God's not up there playing a game of hide and seek. He's not playing a game of cruelty with humanity. That he's someone that we can love and approach and come to and find strength and comfort and grace and mercy and hope. Right? He's light in the midst of darkness. And God is calling us out of darkness, out of pain and suffering and shame into light. And so, yes, God is trying to draw us in, but that right there still creates the understanding that God owes us a perfect life, a comfortable life. What we don't understand about grace is that it's a two-way street. See, there are things that we do that have hurt other people. That's contributed to the pain. And God's offer of mercy and grace and hope isn't just to comfort you, but it's also to transform you, to make you a person of light, not just to dwell in light. See, this is God's unconditional love for humanity that he calls all people from a level playing field, calls all people out of darkness into light to see that he is good and in him we can be instruments of good. See, if we're going to draw near to God, we have to realize that we need transformation as much as the world around us needs transformation. And if we just come to God thinking, the world's messed up, God, you need to fix this, we're never going to get very close to God. But if we come to him in that desperation, in that brokenness, saying, God, I wish this had been different. I wish I had not done this, or I wish that this had not happened to me. And we come to him saying, God, but I know you are good, that you are light, that you will heal, that you will restore, and that in this life there is brokenness. And instead of condemning all of humanity, instead of striking all of humanity dead, including myself, I can come to you and receive grace and mercy and extend grace and mercy. See, the alternative is to reject God and say he's not good. And we still have to wrestle with the brokenness in our own lives and in the world around us. We find no answers there either. 
The reason that Christ came was to insert himself into a problem that he did not create and offer hope and grace and mercy and love to anyone and everyone that would come. But if we don't believe he's good, we're never going to take that step. See, for most of us, that leaves us with a question of why. Why evil? Why the pain? Because humanity has rebelled against God and we all know that life should not be this way. Which actually points to the narrative of God's creation. God created us to live in perfect union with him, in perfect union with each other, with no sickness, shame, guilt, pain, or sin. And God has inserted himself in and says, I will redeem you out of this brokenness and give you what your heart longs in the life to come. How is that not good? For God to extend to humanity that does not deserve to be restored, but yet out of his goodness, balances perfectly love for humanity and justice by settling the punishment for sin upon himself and extending love to us and calling us back into right relationship with him. God perfectly balances good and evil, right and wrong, love and justice. This is the message of Christianity, that God is good, humanity is not, but in God we can become what we really long for and we will receive the peace that we're looking for in the life to come. The third principle is this. Not only do we need to believe that God exists and that he's good, but we need to believe Jesus is present in every circumstance of life. Where do we see this? Going back into Hebrews eleven six, And for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. See, it's an issue of perspective. You know, there's a lot that science teaches us about the human brain and that the more we complain and the more we see negative, the more negative we feel about ourselves and the world around us. It actually puts a lens on, if you will. It's like looking through a set of glasses and we actually lose the ability to see anything good, anything positive, to experience hope, to actually believe in these things. And see, God even teaches us this, that whatever's true and noble and good and praiseworthy, that we should think on these things. Why? Because it changes the way that we see ourselves, others, and him. See, we have an active role in this life. Faith isn't just about this surrendering over to God and whatever God does and whatever God says. Nobody can ever know. Nobody ever actually has an active role in it. God is sovereign, by the way. You know, we're all just little pawns on the board as God moves us around and ruins our life or blesses our life, however he sees fit. There's a sovereignty in God saying that you are going to make decisions and no matter what decision you make, you will not disturb my plan. And that's hard to understand because that makes God a lot bigger than us. That means that God can see things that we can't see. See, we have limits. We're finite. God has no limits. He's infinite. 
God sees things that are going to happen before you ever know they're going to happen. He sees all of time in a snapshot. We see time in, in frames. And to understand that we need to be able to see him, to look for him, to understand that he exists, means that that means that I can look for him in this circumstance and to believe he's good, he's going to look like hope and love and joy and comfort and peace, everything that's good. That's what he's gonna look like. And so when I'm struggling and my marriage is falling apart, God, where are you? You're there. And I can look and whatever is hopeful and loving and peaceful and joyful, God, you're gonna be there. That's what you wanna bring. That's, that's the presence you want me to experience in the brokenness of my life and in my marriage. It's when I have hopes and dreams to do something significant with my life is believing that God is present in the future and that God is working out a plan and I'm a part of that plan and I can live for something larger than myself is being able to believe that that plan will be good even though there's opposition and struggle. There's not a story on the planet that we watch on screen or that we get inspired by through conversation over coffee table that doesn't have something that oppresses against good that humanity has to overcome. See, when we're struggling to do good and to bring good into the world, we're gonna have that struggle. We're gonna have that opposition, but we know that good prevails because it's ultimately tied to God. And it's being able to see that in the midst of our struggles. It's realizing that what other people have meant towards our pain and evil that's been inflicted upon us does not have to be the end of our life, a futile, wasted, depressed, and overwhelmed life, that we can actually overcome that to see good and then offer good to other people that are needing that hope. We can become instruments in hope in a way that nobody else could ever offer unless you have been there. See, it's believing that God doesn't just exist, that he's the source of all good, but it's believing that he's present in every circumstance. But like all things, I'm gonna have to step back and I'm gonna have to get a clearer picture of what's going on in my life. See, it comes down to what we believe. If we don't believe he exists, then we'll never see him. If we don't believe he's good, we're not gonna trust him. We're never gonna be able to have the lenses to live by faith and not by sight. See, faith is being able to see God in good and bad. It's relying on him. See, it bottom lines like this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. You ever heard the definition of faith, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen? Let's look at this verse in the Good News Bible. To have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for. What do we hope for? We hope for good, Right? We hope for good for our marriages. We hope for good for our kids. We hope for good for the world. We hope for good to triumph over evil. We hope for good things that come in our life and in the life of those around us. In pain, we want to see hope. In struggle, we want to see hope. In, in, in all kinds of suffering, we want to see hope. Faith is to be sure 
of the things we hope for, to realize that the foundation of everything we hope for is Jesus. He's a source of good. And to be certain of things we can't see. So when we're facing the unknown, we are certain of the existence of God. In situations where we need hope, we're trusting in the goodness of God. So faith is to be sure of the things we hope for and certain of the things we can't see. Or to put it like this, Jesus is the foundation of all I hope for and the proof I need in the unknown. That's faith. How do I have that? I believe that he exists, that he's good, and that he is with me always. It's a change of perspective. Perspective.